morning, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. So go ahead and turn there. And to get us to this point, I want to, I want to do a bit of a summary uh, to kind of catch us up to this point in the book. Most of you have been here for most of, or all of this series through Paul's letter to the Galatians, but to remind us and kind of keep us uh, all focused in the right direction, let's review where we've come so far. So, Galatians chapter 1 through uh, Galatians 2.21, Paul argues to defend his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as well as the truth of the gospel. And then the end of that, Galatians 2, 15 through 21, is sort of a transition into the next major section of the letter where the main question is, who belongs to the family of Abraham? Paul argues there that being right with God is based on faith, not on works. The Galatians belong to the family of Abraham and the people of God because of their trust in Jesus and no other reason. And then chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, he reminds them that the Spirit, which is the mark of being a Christian, has been given to them by faith rather than by obeying the works of law, and that as believers they are children of Abraham. He says that those who attempt to be righteous by obeying the law will actually be cursed, but the blessing of Abraham and the promise of the Spirit belong to those who put their trust in Christ, and that Christ removed the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He says later in chapter 3 that the Mosaic law was temporary. It was actually less than the covenant with Abraham, so believers are no longer under its authority, and now believers are God's sons and heirs of the inheritance. And all of this by faith. But as we saw last week, Paul is concerned that they're reverting back to their pagan past through a commitment to the Mosaic law. And that maybe his preaching was in vain. And now we come to Galatians chapter 4 verses 12 through 20. So let's read it and work through it. And if you're able to, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Beginning with verse 12 of Galatians 4. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of being here today, for uh, 
the joy of coming together with your body to worship you in spirit and in truth. And that's our desire, Lord, whether it's through singing or through fellowship or through uh, hearing your word, Lord. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. So help us, we pray. And be glorified through this time in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Verse 12 again, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. After all of the groundwork that has been laid up to this point, this is the very first imperative that Paul gives, calling the Galatians to action. He treats the Galatians to become as he is. Now, what, what does he mean by that? In what sense is he calling them to become like him? And after all he has said about not submitting to circumcision or subjecting themselves to the Mosaic law, we can understand that that's what he's meaning here. Become as I am, unfettered by the law. Be free as I am free. Paul's saying, I'm no longer enslaved to the law, and you should become as I am. Follow my example. Imitate me. Now, this is not the, the first and only time Paul calls others to imitate him, right? In Philippians 3, 17, he says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And that's the desire he has for these Galatians here. Scott McKnight writes here, most likely Paul means something like this, become like me by freeing yourself from the law of Moses. Just as I abandoned the law of Moses as God's dominant revelation for his people. The second clause, for I also became as you are, would then mean I became like you Gentiles when I abandoned the law, accepted that I too was a sinner, and then turned to Jesus Christ. Paul says, I entreat you, I beseech you, become like me. He's giving them this command as someone who longs to see them grow. He wants to see them mature in Christ. He wants to see them believe and walk in the newness of life that has been given to them in Jesus. And then what does he say? You've done me no wrong, or you did me no wrong. Now this, this whole section is a reminder of friendship. Friendship that they shared, and Paul hopes they still share in Christ. Paul wasn't just someone who passed through. There were relationships that were built, deep relationships built, love that was built. They had received him very warmly when he had come at first to preach in Galatia. And that kindness they had shown him signified their response to Christ himself. You see more of this in the next verses. Verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. 
the welcome that Paul received among the Gentiles was remarkable because his presence among them was not one that was attractive. He says it was through a bodily ailment that he preached the gospel to them. Whether, whether that means it was, was a sickness or something that caused him to be diverted to Galatia or stop in Galatia. There have been many theories that have been mentioned from this verse, or this section anyway. People suggest um, that he had some sort of sickness or disease that caused him to look unsightly, or maybe it was due to the intense uh, persecution that he had suffered, and he may still be recovering from that. The truth is, any attempt to determine or identify the disease or cause of this bodily ailment is just conjecture. We don't know. It's, it's guessing. What we do know is that whatever the sickness was, it was not a liability to the spread of the gospel. Paul comes in this condition and he preaches the gospel and people believe. The weakness of Paul was the pathway by which Christ's strength was manifested through him. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, by no means does this mean that Paul's referring specifically to whatever ailment is in Galatians. But the point he's making is, it is through weakness it's through weakness that God used me. It's His power and strength alone. He writes to the Colossians in Colossians 1, verses 24 and following. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What's Paul's point in all of these? In, in all three of these cities, it's Christ and Christ alone that is powerful. Paul doesn't come manipulating. Paul doesn't come having some uh, special sermon that he has mastered in such a way to convince people to come to know Jesus. No, he's like, I'm weak. And yet it's through my weakness and even through my sickness and my suffering that God works for His own glory and people come to believe in Him for salvation. 
He continues in verse 14, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And whatever the weakness was, Paul says it was a trial, or, or it could be translated a temptation to the Galatians. And maybe because it could seem that his message wasn't from God, since they might be assuming that a divine message coming from God Himself would come uh, attached to strength and not weakness. Certainly we see this in places today where the prosperity gospel and those who proclaim it will say that God will bless and that sickness is a sign of a lack of faith rather than a sign that we live in a broken world. But these Galatians, though tempted and though it was a trial to them, did not reject Paul for his suffering. In fact, they listened and they realized that his message was the truth of the gospel sent to them by God. It says they received him as an angel of God and even as Christ Jesus. Evidence the Spirit of God was working within the Galatians. In verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. It's amazing. Originally, the Galatians had blessed Paul for his message. There was friendship, there was relationship there. They received him as a friend. And now it seems that the blessing has gone away. What then has become of your blessedness? Initially, he says they would have done whatever they could for him. The example is pretty clear. That if possible, they would have gouged out their eyes and given them to Paul. Now then, again, this, this verse is why some um, will, will say that Paul's ailment must have been something with his eyes. Again, that's conjecture. We're just guessing there. And it's really not necessary. The expression that he's given is possibly... Uh, just a way to say that the Galatians were willing to give whatever it took. Whatever they needed to give to help him, they would give. Sort of like uh, if, if one of us were to say, I would give my right arm for something or for someone. Thomas Schreiner writes, their joy at receiving the Spirit was so great that they were happy to suffer themselves if only they could assist Paul in some way. Happy to suffer themselves if only they could assist Paul in some way. Now, what is that? That is counting others more significant than yourself. That's what counting others more significant than yourself, that's what it looks like. It's what we refer to here as gospel community, which is one of our core values as a church. 
Gospel community, our, our value says this. Jo, jo, Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As people deeply loved by God and adopted into his family, we commit ourselves to engaging with one another with purposeful love that reflects the costly, sacrificial love that God showed us when Jesus died for our sins. We do so by joyfully serving one another, sharing our resources with one another as needs arise, actively using our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, showing hospitality to one another as well as those outside the church and ultimately choosing to have the same humility of mind as Christ. As described in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, considering others better than ourselves. That was the environment, that was the community that Paul experienced among the Galatians when he was there with them before, after preaching the gospel and then believing and receiving the Spirit. He said, what happened? What happened to your blessedness? It was because of the Spirit, because of Christ's work in them, that that was evident to Paul in Galatia. And now, Paul questions if it's there at all. Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? There's clearly been a change in the believers in Galatia, at least in their attitude towards Paul and towards the gospel. And it's a good reminder for us because truly, this is an issue in the church. If someone doesn't believe the way that we believe, so often they are treated or counted as an enemy. A brother or sister in Christ created in the image of God, bought by the blood of Jesus, counted as an enemy because they don't see the things the way that I see them. Paul saying to these Galatians, what changed? I simply, I simply told you the truth. Now to be clear, Paul isn't necessarily accusing them of being enemies. He's asking whether they're seeing him as one based on their actions. He's saying, our friendship was established. It was solid. I've been doing what a good friend would do and telling you the truth. Am I now your enemy because of that? Again, it's an important question for us. One we ought to consider in our hearts. Is there someone or is there some people that we have relegated to even though we wouldn't say the word enemy, in our hearts and our minds, we've relegated to enemy because we don't agree with one another in everything doctrinally. Verse 17 continues. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Paul's saying, look, these rival teachers are zealous to win you over. They want to alienate you from us so that you will be zealous for them. 
Their, their desire is not that you'd be zealous for the gospel or zealous for God. Their desire is that you would be, you'd be zealous for them. That you'd truly be followers of them. Now, zeal is a good thing, but only when it's accompanied by truth. Paul writes to the Romans about his Jewish brothers and sisters in Romans 10, starting with verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul says these, these Jewish brothers of mine, they, they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to truth. And therefore, the way he starts that is, my desire and my prayer for them is that they would be saved because they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not according to the truth of the gospel. And this is Paul's warning to the Galatians here as well. They're zealous, yes, but not according to knowledge. They, they want you, Galatians, to be zealous for them, they desire to turn the Galatians against Paul and therefore turn, turn them away from the truth of the gospel. And so they have to make a decision. These Galatians have to make a decision. They either follow the rival teachers or they follow Paul. Either they show zeal for the one true gospel or the false teaching that requires circumcision. He goes on, verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Again, there is, there is good zeal. There's a kind of zeal that should be evident in the life of a believer. There's a kind of zeal that should be evident in the life of a believer. A kind of zeal that we ought to desire. If, if someone is zealous for what is good, then their life will be pleasing to God. It's good to be zealous if you are zealous for God according to knowledge, according to the truth of the gospel. Notice what Paul's saying at the end of the verse, not only when I'm there with you, not only when I'm watching. What would that reveal? That they're zealous to please Paul, not to please God. Again, we can all be tempted here in the same way to live and to act a certain way because someone we look up to, someone we respect is around, or someone who we know expects something of us is around. Someone that expects some kind of spirituality from us. And so we act according to their expectations, 
rather than living a life according to the expectations of God through Christ. That's not zeal that pleases God. That's zeal that seeks to please a person. Zeal that wants to impress someone. These these rival teachers have a zeal that is nationalistic and contrary to the promises of Abraham. And Paul is warning the Galatians here, don't follow that. Don't follow them. Don't have that kind of zeal. Have a zeal that that is... rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be zealous for the gospel and be zealous for the king. Don't be jealous for your own reputation. Don't be jealous for for what people think of you. Be jealous for Christ's reputation. If we want to ponder that for just a minute, what is and what was the reputation of Christ? To find the answer to that, you look to the Gospels. Look to the things He specifically called us to. Start at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew Uh, Chapters 5 through 7. Look to how he lived. Look at how he loved people. And then follow. Be zealous for him. And be zealous to live in light of that. Verse 19 My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He gives this striking picture here. He is saying here he's like a woman in labor suffering the pains of labor for what? For these Galatians until Christ is formed in you, he says. That's Paul's desire that Christ would be formed in them. He's concerned that they're reverting back to paganism. And he's hurting, agonizing for these spiritual children of his. Notice Paul says again there in verse 19. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He has suffered for them before and with them, among them before, and he's suffering again for this one thing that Christ and Christ alone would be formed in these Galatians. Susan Eastman writes here concerning Paul's use of anguish of childbirth, or maybe your translation says birth pangs. The apostles cry reminds the Galatians that his labor is also God's labor and that God is the one who has power to bring from conception to birth, from beginning to completion. Furthermore, this creative power cannot be divorced from the suffering of God and its embodiment in the apostles' missionary 
preaching. It's similar to what, what I read earlier that he wrote to the Colossians. I'm filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. What's lacking in the suffering of Christ among the Colossians? Only His presence. Christ's work is completely sufficient for salvation. The only thing that's lacking there is the visibility to the Colossians of what Christ endured for them to be saved. And Paul's saying, I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. You're being able to see before your eyes the suffering of Christ before you. Similar, he's saying that to these Galatians. And I'm doing it because I want to see Christ formed in you. Prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 8.21, For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. It's Paul's heart for the Galatians. And again, for what? Until Christ is formed in them. I really love the um, ERV, the easy to read version of um, the Bible here. It says this, My little children, I am in pain again over you, like a mother giving birth. I will feel this pain until people can look at you and see Christ. The reality of their birth, their new birth, will be evident when Christ takes shape in them. When others look, and see Jesus. And that's what Paul longs for. That's what Paul suffers for. Paul longs for the day when the Galatians have reached maturity, when he no longer faces this anguish or anxiety over them. And then in verse 20, he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You see his heart again here. I wish I was with you right now. If I was, I would change the way I'm, I'm communicating with you, but I'm at a loss over you. I'm perplexed. I'm confused. He's saying in person he would speak in more winsome ways, but he's at a loss over how they've gotten to this point and how they have so quickly abandoned the truth and freedom of the gospel. And so he pleads with them. As I sat and thought about this last verse, I thought, isn't that just like Jesus? So often we can read the Bible and think, man, this is, this is harsh. This feels harsh. But how does Jesus come to us? Meek, gentle, as a servant, ultimately a servant through death, who died for us. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together and and so let's dwell on the truth of that today. Jesus died for our sins. 
Jesus died for our sins. We are forgiven in Christ Jesus. We're clean. We have freedom in Christ alone. Because His body was broken and His blood was poured out for us. You think of those two words, for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. So let's set our hearts on Him as we partake of the bread and the cup today. You're going to be dismissed by rows to come and receive the elements and then take them back to your seat and then Ryan will lead us through partaking together. But let's set our hearts on Jesus who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, a suffering that we cannot even conceive, one that we can't even imagine. And the Bible says He did it all for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. What a blessing to serve You and to know You. We're absolutely unworthy. And that's grace. We praise You for Jesus, Lord. We ask you to help us, even in this time as we come and we take the bread and we take the cup and we prepare our hearts to receive it together, announcing to one another that we believe. We believe the gospel is true. We believe that Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live. We believe that your body was broken and your blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we believe you're coming again. We believe you're alive, Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, in the taking of the bread and the cup, remembering what you accomplished, that we also remember who you are. And we seek to display the living Jesus to one another, and to those we encounter day after day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.